This is a teaching message from Church of the Living Water of Austin. I'm teaching on how to find rest, laboring to enter into God's rest. And so why do we as believers need to live a fasted and prayerful life? Why should this be a lifestyle for a believer? And like I said last week, in every dispensation of life, you're going to come to a crossroads. There's going to be a crucial, pivotal, pivotal life-changing juncture in your life. And at this crossroads, you will have to make a decision. And I told you last week, there's going to be three entities present at this crossroads. It's going to be you. It's going to be Christ. And it's going to be the devil. It's going to be the adversary. It's going to be the accuser. He's going to be there. And I want to start with a different scripture this morning. I know we started at Hebrews, and we're going to get there again. But I want to turn to Zechariah, chapter 3. It's the second to last book of the, of the Old Testament. Zechariah, Malachi. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to ask you to put your spiritual ears on this morning. And I'm going to read, starting at verse 1. I hear some pages turn. I'm going to give you a couple more seconds. If it helps, start from Matthew and go backwards. Malachi, Zechariah. Okay? Alright, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. I want you all to know, Joshua here is representing God's people. It's Israel. Okay? And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right, right hand to resist him. So there it is right there. There's the three entities right there. There's you, there's the Lord, and then there's Satan. And there's the Satan standing on the right, ready to resist, right? That's so funny to me because he's like a prosecutor, right? He's like the accuser of the brethren. There he is. Ready to resist you. That's what I want you to understand. That when you go to when you go to minister before God or offer sacrifices to Him or or stand up for God, know this and expect this: the devil's going to try to resist you. Expect that you're going to have opposition. But let's look at verse two. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee. Look, Satan's checked immediately before he even had anything to say. The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. Even the Lord hath chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? He's talking about the people of Israel. Didn't, didn't the Lord put, aren't, aren't there a brand plucked out of the fire? Didn't he save you? Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angels. Now let me tell you about this filthy garment. It's talking about impurity. It's talking about sin. And understand this. Christ hates sin. He loathes sin. And yet, he came back for Joshua. He doesn't hate the individual. He hates sin. He didn't cast them aside. See, through God's renewing grace, He washes those from their sins. He makes us kings and priests to God. And He answered and spake unto those that stood before Him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from Him. And unto Him He said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. Didn't I say He washes? He washes us. See, those who Christ makes priests, they're clothed with a spotless raiment. A, a raiment of righteousness. And this is how God's going to know you. Because see, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ and God's eye is always on Christ. That's how God is going to know you. And he said, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And, and unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. I, you know, I, I can't seem to get past that scripture right now. See, because we are the bride of Christ, right? 
So what he did was he clothed us in raiment. Because the Bible says we should love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So he took the church. He gave them a robe of righteousness. He adorned them with jewels of peace, diamonds of self-control, rubies of joy, his fruit of the Spirit. That's what he, and then he presented the church to himself. Now, I don't know why I'm here, but some of you husbands or wives that feel like you have to step out, but you husbands especially feel like you have to step out on your wives because, oh, but she's not what I remember her used to be. Well, Christ adorned his bride and presented him to himself. See, that's, in, that's endeavoring to enter his rest too. You have to adorn your wife and present it to yourself. See, that's your, that's your duty as well. That's your job. And I don't know why we're, why we're going there. But this scripture just ministers to me. So let me start back again. Verse, verse 4. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, and I said Let them set a fair meter upon his head. So they set a fair meter upon his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by and the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus said the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou... I'm sorry. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are man wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. There he is. See, this is what you have to understand. Whatever trials, whatever things you pass through, whatever services we perform, our whole dependence has to be in Christ. He's the branch of righteousness. He's the branch that the fruit that we're doing with comes from. We have to always be focused on Christ. If you want God to take notice of you, then you have to put on Christ. That's the only thing that he's well pleased with. He's not pleased with anything else. He's not pleased with your own efforts. He's not pleased with your own order of worship. He's pleased with Christ. So we have to put on Christ. And that's, you know what we're putting on Christ is? That's responding to his grace correctly. His sanctifying grace. That's putting on Christ. Knowing how to, knowing how to respond to it. Being enabled by the Spirit to walk in the newness of life. But that's putting on Christ. Christ is God's servant. Employed in God's work. Obedient to God's will. He's the chief cornerstone. The eye of the Father is on Christ. And it's our job to always make sure that we choose Christ in all our ways. So that when we face the crossroads, we're not left desolate. We're not left without a guide, without direction. We have to choose Christ. And the thing is about the crossroads, you know, when you say crossroads, people think it's something big coming. I can anticipate it coming. No. That's why I said you have to always be ready. It's the small foxes that spoil the vine. You never know. You may be out of practice the ways of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and you have a small thing, like I told y'all last week about that, that little traffic incident. Those are small things. But it could have been my crossroads. 
It could have changed my life forever if I didn't choose Christ in the situation. That's what I mean when I say crossroads. Don't be waiting and thinking about something while well, my crossroad is yet to come. It's, it, it's, it's just around the corner. The devil is not waiting and letting you gear up like, oh, we're we waiting for the big fight. No, no, no. He's the accuser of the brother. You have to always be ready for the crossroads. You have to always choose Christ. You have to always be willing to soar to new heights with Christ. You have to always be willing to be corrected by his word. So like I said last week, that means our job is to be prepared or in position to respond correctly. And we said prepared means to always be ready. And to always be ready as a believer, we have to live a prayerful and a fasted life. We have to always come to the table. For those who were here last Sunday evening. If you weren't here last Sunday evening, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But we have to always come to the table. We have to be disciplined to come into the table. That's what makes you an overcomer. That means we have to endure the opposition that is guaranteed to come our way. We have to seek his face. Quit seeking his hand. Quit seeking handouts. Seek his face. And he'll show you his glory. You have to make your calling and your election sure. You have to endeavor to enter into God's rest. And like we said last week, yeah, God did offer grace, but you have to have the proper response to it. Oh, his, sancti- his grace, His sanctifying grace is what has been brought to, through Christ, but you have to respond to it. You have to get into that. It's not, I, I, you can do what you want to and I provide grace and cover that. No, you have to get into a sanctifying grace. We know what sanctifying is, right? We have to allow it to, to, to transform us, to change us, to renew us. So let's go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to start at verse 8. Like I said, we have to allow His grace, we have to allow His word, we have to allow the righteousness of Jesus Christ to sanctify us. We can't continue in sin. God forbid. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And that's why we went to Hebrews here, chapter 3, verse 8. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they, do, they have not known my ways. So I swear my wrath, they shall not enter into rest. And we said last week, are we able, can we enter into rest? Is that a possibility for us to enter into his rest right now? And I said, yes. Let's, let's just go down to chapter 4, and I'm going to start at verse, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us enter into his rest, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, what enables you and, and, and helps you to labor to enter into his rest is the word mixed with faith. Without faith in Christ, the word is nothing but a textbook that you're trying to memorize. I'm going to tell you something. I had a, I put a comment actually, out on Facebook this week from Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 8. And I just said, harden not your hearts. 
and I gave a definition of heart in your heart, what heart in your heart means, but I put the scripture. And then a friend from high school of mine, and I haven't talked to him since high school. I say a friend, an acquaintance, right? He doesn't even live in Texas no more. But he got on there and he was like, well, didn't Pharaoh harden, or didn't God harden Pharaoh's heart? And I said, you know, and we went through the whole discussion about God allowing Pharaoh's heart to be, to be hardened and things like that. And he was like, you know, the, the Bible was written by man and, you know, I, I just can't trust man and, and this and that. And I can't put, see, it's all about that religion and I'm not good on religion. And I told him, listen, I, and, and there was another person on the page with me and, you know, it started to get a little argumentative. And I told him, I said, listen, this is all I have to tell you. It has nothing to do with religion. I said, religion is a man thing. I said, it has everything to do with your relationship. I said, it has all to do with your relationship with Christ. And I said, the thing about your relationship is, I said, I can remove that scripture from what I posted and just say, harden not your hearts. I said, but at that point, you still have to believe there's a God. Even if there's no scripture, there's still somebody that should be directing you. I said, so what's missing? I said, you have to have faith. That's what's missing. So you don't, you don't, if you don't really believe there's a God, then that scripture, or even that saying, is, it doesn't even sound like something for you. But it's faith that's missing. But I didn't want to argue with him. And he did. He, he shot me a message off. He was like, man, I never heard of it that way. I said, well, I said, because you're busy listening to man still. Talking about religion. See how the world has skewed him. I said, but it's all about your relationship with God. I said, you build your own personal relationship. I said, watch your faith get built. And of course, uh, uh, Brother Gilbert was on there. He invited him to our church and he didn't know. He lives in California now. But I did send him a message. And I told him, next time you're in Austin, I said, come on back. I said, come, I said, I said, there's no gonna be, not going to be any arguments. I said, just come and see me and say, what's up, brother? But it's all about your relationship. And your relationship, in this relationship with Christ, or in this relationship with God, if you don't have faith, there is no relationship. There's no relationship, and everything you hear is going to be irritating to you. Because, oh, it sounds right, but it comes from something that I don't have faith in. So if we're endeavoring to enter into God's rest, we have to mix it with faith. The Word of God mixed with faith. We are talking about God's rest. We, we talked about Genesis last week. How God, when He created the, from the foundation of the world, and He said He was completed, He was finished with His rest. That means from the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. From the foundation of the world, he, this, in creation, he, he knew that man was going to be far from Him. And that He needed to send His Son. From the foundation of the world, His Son was sent. And then he was finished with his works. Are we, are we in, we're still in Hebrews 4? I'm going to read from verse, let me read verse 9 and 10 actually. And it says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. See, to enter into his, works mean, into his rest means that I'm to be finished with my works. I'm through relying on me and what I can do. Just like God was finished with his work from the foundation of the world, I'm to be finished with mine. Once we come into the knowledge of Christ and we subdue and, and we're finished from our works, and we repent from our works, then we're able, to, we're able to walk in the Spirit. That's his sanctifying grace. The Spirit, that's the grace of God. If you didn't know, his sanctifying grace, allowing yourself to be controlled by the Spirit, that's his sanctifying grace. Walking through his conviction of the Spirit, that's you responding incorrectly to His grace. And, and when you do that, you line yourself up to be, to be, to be able to, to receive God's wrath. 
And what did we say last week? We said God's wrath, all it is, is His love and action against sin. See, I'm appreciative. I'm grateful for God's wrath. I'm grateful for Him being a just God. Because I'm, listen, I'm giving every answer. I've emptied myself out to follow Christ. And it wouldn't be a just thing for Him to let anybody just come into heaven. That wouldn't be a just God. So we have to respond to His grace correctly. Allow His Spirit to control us. When we do that, then we're made partakers of Christ. If you hold fast to the confidence, the first confidence, the hope of glory. So what did we say last week? Hardening your heart was. And this is what I actually put on my Facebook page with the, the scripture. I said, harden your heart. Refusing to take and receive an understanding of God's will for your life. And that's all to do with your faith. If you're not taking and receiving the understanding, it's because you don't have faith in it. You're not mixing the word with faith. Because those who endeavor to enter into his rest, they have faith. There's no other way we can enter. It just said it in verse 2 on chapter 4. You have to mix the word with faith. If you're endeavoring to enter into his rest. So what is our faith? And I said last week, it's, our faith is the ability to, ability to endure until we see Christ face to face. And that's our equation. That's our equation to be the overcomer. To be the wall builder. It's the word. It's prayer. It's biblical fellowship. Plus the ability to endure until we see Christ face to face. That's what makes us the wall builder. That's what makes us the overcomer. This is how we labor to enter into God's rest. Being disciplined to those things. So here we are at the table again. Endeavoring to enter into God's rest. So my objective again for this whole teaching is to point out the things this congregation needs as a whole. To be prepared for the crossroads. And to point out what we need to cut away or subdue. So that by faith we can enter into God's rest. And so last week we said the first thing that, we, that this congregation needed, because we know there's, there's a whole list of things that we can do, but we're talking about this congregation. The first thing we need is self-control. And then I talked about freedom a little bit, right? And, I, and, and, and I'm going to repeat this again. We are free to do the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're free to do that. That's the liberty that we have in Christ. If you want to please God. Let me, let me change what I say. Right. You're free to do whatever you want to do. But if you, if you want to please God, you're free to do the righteousness of Christ. If you don't want to please God, then do what you want to do. Just be on the lookout for His wrath. Listen, there's the trumpet right there. His wrath is coming. The trumpet is blown. So you're free to do his righteousness. And we said another word for self-control was temperance. One of those things that come from the, the fruit of the Spirit, from love. And I gave a, a definition of temperance and I said it's the concentration, or self-control, it's the concentration of all man's power and ability and capability on doing God's will and his will alone. And doing it through whatever, whatever, point, whatever calling or, or whatever venue or whatever channel that God appoints is doing his will. I said it's the denial or restraining either totally or to whatever degree necessary of those things and those peoples and the, and the desires. And no matter how innocent they are, if they interfere with your walk with God, 
you have to have you have to you have to apply some temperance. You have to apply some self control. If it's not exercised on a continual basis, then when you come to the crossroads, what did we say last year? It's, it's going to leave you a blind prisoner. And then we looked at somebody in the Bible who literally got left a blind prisoner. And we talked about Samson. And here's one thing I want to know about Samson. I talked about him being swollen, this and that. The Bible doesn't say any of that thing. It doesn't. My whole point of saying those things to you is because he was nothing without the Spirit of God. That was my whole point of telling you that. He was nothing without the Spirit of God. For all we knew, he could have been a skinny little thing with long hair. But when the Spirit of God came over him, let me tell you, couldn't nobody see him. He was nothing without the Spirit of God. He was able to rent a lion in two by the Spirit of God. His own people bound him up and delivered him to the Philistines. He broke the cords and slayed a thousand of them with a jawbone of an ass. They surrounded him at Gaza. He lifted up the gates and they, they fled. He lifted them up, 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 up out the ground, studded gates, messed them up by the Spirit of God. But he was drawn away with his own lust. Because if you read about Samson, he had a wife before. When his, when his wife was gone, at Gaza, if you read it, he went to go see a harlot. Then he went to go see the lie. See, what you need to understand is that he had a woman problem. He had a self-control problem. He had a lust. And because of this lust, he was delivered to the hands of the Philistines. He gave away the secret to his strength. Now, I say the secret, right, because he, he lost his hair and Delilah tricked him into do that. But that was, his, that was his sign of consecration to God. And he forfeited that. Because of his lust. And then what did happen? That once they captured him, he was without his strength. They put him at the, on a grindstone mill, like a beast of burden. They burned out his eyes, and he was a prisoner. He was a, literally a blind prisoner. All because of the lust of his flesh. Giving in to his unruly impulses. These are the things that we cannot do. We'll be left blind prisoners. And we said that the lack of self-control will lead to unruly impulses, like the, the urge to overeat, angry impulses, you know, the, the, those verbal attacks, or I, can't just, I just can't be temperate and have self-control. I have to say something back now. They've got to hear what I've got to say. Harmful feelings, impatience, and envy. You need self-control for those things. Passionate urges, like gambling, smoking, or drinking. Sexual fantasies. They need to be brought under self-control. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it says, He that have no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So that means a man without self-control is an easy victim when he's attacked by his own desires. His own lust. Far too many of us suffer with this self-control. And the thing about self-control is, a lot of people see things and they like to blame it on other people, but they never want to start with themselves. That's why I gave that, that illustration last week about that traffic incident, and I was so worried about what that guy was thinking, and then the Spirit came to me, where's your self-control? Don't worry about them, because you need my sanctifying grace too. 
Are you going to respond to it? And when we like to put stuff off on other people, all we're doing is procrastinating God's change of power. And what do we say procrastination is? It's the gateway to wrath. And we talked about God's wrath, but it's also the gateway to wrath in your life. You put off, you put off handling with things, then it boils over, and next thing you know, it blows up in your face. And we all know about bombs. A bomb has never just hurt one person. If a bomb was to drop in here, everybody would be affected. Procrastination, the bomb of procrastination, the wrath, everybody will be affected. Everybody in your circle will. We have to practice self-control. And so we looked at what men's thought were on self-control. And I gave a couple examples. And I'm just going to give one again. We were talking about, you know, somebody who wanted to control their urges of eating. They could get them like a padlock or a chain to put on the refrigerator or something like that. But that's not the self-control that the Spirit provides. Those are men's thought, right? That's what men's think that can be done. But biblical self-control takes one who's maturing in the things of God. There's no chain needed. It's the word of God needed mixed with faith. And I said, when you're able to say no, that's a sign of maturity. That's a great barometer to see if you've been in the Word. When you're able to say no to those selfish desires you have, those lusts of the flesh, that's a great barometer. If you're not able to say no, if you find yourself continually falling to the same lust of your flesh, just know it's time to get into that Word and mix it with faith. Because we all have our Bibles, right? We all can pick up the pages and read it, but where's your faith? The word mixed without faith, it's, it's nothing. It's paper with ink. You could type up some of these scriptures and print it out and say you printed your own copy of the Bible. And it'd still be nothing if you have no faith. So we looked at that word self-control in Galatians when they're talking about the fruits of the Spirit. And we saw that the, the, the root meaning of that word means to gain power. You have to gain power over those desires found within. It's not a restricting activity. It's not putting a chain on it. It's gaining power through control of the Spirit. He's the one who gives us Christ so that we can overcome these things. And then we ask the question, well, if all, the, if, if all believers have the Spirit, then why don't all believers have self-control? And I said, self-control is a product of the Spirit-controlled life. Though all Christians have the Spirit, not all of them are living under His control. Because it's a choice to respond correctly to His sanctifying grace. It's a choice. You have your free will. And then we went to Ephesians chapter 5, and, and it says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. And I looked at that word filled, which we said was playru in the, in, in the Greek, which means to be controlled. See, being drunk with, mind, with, with wine means you're not sober-minded. You're not going to be controlled by the Spirit. So like, like during this, fa- this time of fasting and praying, you know, for you people that drink, since I, we went to that scripture, because like I said last week, people don't drink just to, I'm drinking for the antioxidants. No. No, you're not. There's other things for that. They got cranberry juice for that, right? There's other things for that. You're drinking to get inebriated. 
You're drinking to get out of your normal state of mind. Let's be honest. Otherwise, you could get it with it. Listen, the doctor can get you some pills with some antioxidants in it. You drink it for something else. You're not being controlled by the Spirit. So then the question was, how are we controlled by the Spirit? How do we take possession of the righteous, the righteous strength that God has made available to us in Christ? And I said, we do this by discipline to the study of the Word, to prayer, and to biblical fellowship. That's going to be a common thread throughout the whole teaching. You have to be disciplined to those things if you want to apply self-control. So many people want to hear a different answer. Just give me a, just give me, give me a one-word answer, then I can just do it and it's over. No. Discipline is over a period of time. And you have to do something different from what you've been doing before. You can't just be disciplined to what you were disciplined to before. You have to change if you really want it. Because he's made it available to us. But you've got to choose it. And I said, being disciplined to these things ensures that we're standing God's will. It ensures his preservation of us. It's our SOP. It's our standard operating procedures. It's our scope of support for ourselves and other members of the body as well. And people who haven't come to Christ. That's our scope of support. Being disciplined to, to prayer and to the word and to biblical fellowship, that's our SOP. And I said, this is what discipline in action is. It's, when, when your understanding grows, when you get spiritually mature, it's time to go back to some of those foundation principles again and learn them again with a new and a better understanding. That's being disciplined. To the word. Discipline requires you to get rid of... It requires you to be humble. Because you might think, oh, I know that already. I don't have to go back. Let me go on to this discipline. And you're going to fall. Because you're counting on yourself. You haven't been finished with your works. And you're going to fall. And so what was the definition we gave for discipline? I said discipline... It's the God-given strategy to carefully chart your spiritual growth so that you can be effective. That means you have to take things at God's pace and not your own. You can't do what you want to do. See, if you be disciplined to your prayer life, to the Word, to the biblical fellowship, you'll know where you need to go. Instead of you just always trying to jump ahead, be disciplined to it. You'll know where you need to go. We have to trust that God will make things beautiful in their season. Not you. If you do that, you're going to stunt your growth. You're going to end up spiritually, spiritually impoverished. So if you are disciplined, and if you stumble in your walk with Christ because of your preparation and discipline, it'll be easy to get up and move forward. It will. And I gave that example of a natural walk last week. We all know, we all dis- we've learned the discipline of walking. But we've all tripped before. We've all stumbled before. But because we're disciplined to this, and we've learned this discipline, we can get up quickly and keep going. Yeah, you know, this morning I was shaving my head. Y'all know I'm bald, right? So I was shaving my head this morning, right? And I've done it time and time again. I've learned that discipline, I felt, right? But I was a little bit rushed this morning. See, that's what happens to your walk. You get a little bit distracted, a little bit rushed. And I don't know if y'all can see it, but I cut myself right here. And it was bleeding this morning. But I know how to do it. But it was me who caused myself to rush, who caused myself to get off, off track, and I did it. But you know what? I was disciplined to it. I knew how to stop it. And I knew, okay, next time, just take your time. 
Set your alarm, get up earlier. Do what you got to do. Take your time. And you're good. Because you know how to do this. Don't fret. Don't worry. Christ is with you. That's what Christ is there for. Let me show you, my brother. You did that the wrong way. Let me show you the right way to do it. So that you have to cut yourself no more. And so we went to, how do we lay a hold of self-control? And we said we have to take responsibility of our actions. We have to be accountable. People are always trying to excuse their behavior, saying it's not my fault. Trying to blame the devil. All he does is present, present persuade. So I thought Pastor Hill explained it perfectly when she talked about the fish always trying to bite. I'm going to take it a step further. You throw out the lure, then you get in the water and get yourself. Because you bait and set your own trap. It's you with your own lust. Out there looking silly. And then want to blame it on the devil. Samson had a problem with women himself. You got to accept that. You got to be accountable to that and be like, so there's some things that I need to change. There's some people I need to stay away from. There's some things that I need to do differently to be accountable to that. Because if I stay on the same thing, I'm going to keep falling for the same thing. Take responsibility. No one can make you do anything. You allow yourself to be dominated by your feelings. We don't relinquish control to the spirit. It's a choice. You're not overpowered. You're just drowning out the voice of God. You're walking through His conviction. Walking that much closer to wrath and judgment. You have to be accountable and be determined to do God's will for your life. Be disciplined to His word, to prayer, to biblical fellowship. Don't give any excuses. Determination and self-discipline is a choice. You have to make a conscious effort to put it into practice. Don't drown out his voice. Like that, that example I gave y'all last week, I could have just drowned out that voice that said self-control and ain't no telling what could have happened. But when his voice comes to you, and it will, if you're his, it will, you can't drown it out. You've got to be disciplined to his word. You have to be determined to be a wall builder. You have to be determined to be an overcomer. Listen, discipline, it is your determination in action. That's what discipline is. If you're determined, you're going to have action behind it. So we have to prepare our minds. Keep sober in spirit. Keep our hope fixed on Christ. Mix faith with your self-control. And stay ready for the crossroads. So number two, when we're getting into the new information. What do we need to be prepared for the crossroads so we can soar to new heights in Christ? And we said it last week, forgiveness. Long-suffering, humility, meekness, kindness, these are all the attitude of forgiveness. So we need to explore those things because these are the things that are going to help you fight the lack of forgiveness. So long-suffering, I'm going to start there. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. 
And I'm going to read just verse 12. <clears throat> Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Now, I have to stop right there. Because when I read it, I had, to, I had to look at put on, right? What he meant there. Literally, in the Greek, that put on means to put on like, a, like, a, like you would put on clothes. You know, when you get up every morning, you're like, oh, I need this. Let me put this on. Your undergarments? What? Hopefully. <laughs> put on the elect. This is a necessity. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. I think they just said everything that I said was needed for forgiveness. Put these things on. This is on a daily basis. You've got to be disciplined to put those things on. So what is long-suffering? It's the patient restraint of anger. It means I'll wait patiently for someone to make progress. I'll wait patiently for someone to make changes. I'll wait patiently for someone to hear me and hear what I'm trying to communicate to them. It means that if somebody offends me and they repent, I'll forgive them. The Bible says 70 times 7. We should forgive if they repent. Well, well, God has been long-suffering to us. He's continuing to be long-suffering for us. How many times have you stumbled and gone back for Him to, for forgiveness through Christ? How many times have you found yourself at the altar crying, Lord, please forgive me? And if, yet, if, you, if you repent with your whole heart and ask for forgiveness, who will move that, who will move that sin as far as the east is from the west? Michael says he, he, he cast it into the sea. Y'all remember that song, The Sea of Forgetfulness? How, he forgets about your sin if you repent. Because repent means a change of heart and you're choosing his ways. It's, repent is not, I've been caught and now I'm sorry. But he's a merciful God. He'll forget your sins if you repent. What does he say in Hebrews? I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Another included in the attitude of forgiveness is kindness. Now kindness means that when I say I forgive you, I mean it. And I won't hold the offense against you. Because I truly do care for you. And I want to show you my care. Being kind means I'm going to be attentive. I'm going to be helpful. I'm going to be beneficial to another. To another person or another situation. Some people confuse being nice with being kind. Being polite with being kind. Let me tell you, nice is, nice is being polite and having manners. But that doesn't mean you're forgiving a person. You can be nice to somebody and not be kind. But God said, C-O-L-W needs kindness. There's a difference. You know this too. You can be kind to somebody without being polite to them. We'll, we'll get there. But there is a difference. 
But know this, the benefits of forgiveness, they won't come into, into effect without kindness. Because it won't be genuine forgiveness. What would we think if God said, I forgive you, and then when we go to ask for help, he'll be like, ah, but remember what you did last time? I, w- I wouldn't find that kind. Especially if you've repented, you know, truly repented from the heart. How would we feel if God brought that up every time? I was like, uh, let, let me think about it. Then he wouldn't be kind. He's a kind guy. But we do this all the time. We say we're forgiving somebody, then something comes up and you're not going to let them forget it. Remember what you did the last time? You owe me. Who owes you what? So what do you owe, what do you owe Christ then? Like you have some sort of leverage. That's not kindness. Amen. Kindness to give your favor to a person, not use it to manipulate them. Kindness is a product of the fruit of the spirit. It's in Galatians five as well, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness. That gentleness, when you look it up, that's kindness. It's to be compassionate, to show kindness, to be considerate, to consider, consider somebody else. Paul uses this the same gentleness word. When I looked up the Greek, he's the same word to describe our God in Titus. Let's go to Titus real quick. Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to read verse 3 through 6. <clears throat> For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of our God, our Savior toward man appeared, nothing by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See that word in verse 4, but the kindness and love of God our Savior? That's the same kindness he's referring to in Galatians. Look it up, if you don't believe me. It's the same word. This kindness, it, it conveys the idea of being adaptable to others. Hear me out. Rather than harshly require everyone to adapt to your own needs and desires, when kindness is working in the believer... They seek to become adaptable to the other's needs. Listen, listen. Not their wants, their needs. Not their desires, their needs. Why do we do that? So that they can see Christ. Christ is kind. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9. And I'm going to read verse 17 through 22 because I want to see I want to show you somebody being adaptable being kind chapter 9 verse 17 through 22 and it reads for I do this thing willingly and have a reward and this is Paul talking but if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me what is my reward then Verily, that when I preach the gospel I make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, 
to them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things, I made all things to all men, that I might be by all means save some. See, that's kindness. He, he became all these things so that they could see Christ. That's kindness. And, and kindness, like I said, it's, a, it's in the attitude of forgiveness. Listen, all these things he became for the gospel's sake. What is the gospel? The gospel message is forgiveness through Christ. How can I preach that gospel message and not forgive my brother? We have to be kind and become adaptable to others around us so they can see Christ and have their needs met. But this is so contrary to the flesh. The flesh says, uh, hold up. If you don't like me the way I am, deal with it. I'm going to just be me. There was a song that, that when I was young that came out called The Same OG. I'm the same OG. Well, let me tell you something. If you come to Christ and you're still the same OG, then you haven't come to Christ. He's kind. It's the work of the Spirit when we become adaptable to meet the needs of others. After all, a brother and sister is a willing servant. This is exactly what Jesus did. Oh, he didn't become adaptable? But made himself no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even unto the cross. I say he, he became the most adaptable ever. He adapted to human flesh. So he could reach us and bring us to God. so that we can enter into God's rest. That's kindness. This kindness should always be in the forefront of our heart. We should also have a meek spirit. A meek person is one who's slow to respond out of anger. One who can control themselves in the face of insult and injury. Oh, that's tough. Oh, that's real tough. And people hear the word meek or see somebody that's meek and they think, oh, that's a weak person. But let me tell you, to be meek, you have to be one of the strongest people out. You know what the key is? They've learned to submit. That's the key. That makes them strong. It's, it's not that they're weak. They're controlled by the Spirit. Instead of bursting into outrage and throwing temper tantrum, a meek person will keep that under control. You know what? I might just have to remain silent until I get that in check. That's meekness. Before I pop off on somebody and do something that I regret. One who's seasoned in meekness, they become like a soothing medicine to somebody who's irritated. Or to a situation that's volatile. If you're meek, instead of adding fuel to the fire, they put the water on it. They put the fire out. 
They don't show in their face that when somebody says something to do, I'm about to lose it. They don't, you know, when somebody's talking to you, like, that's not me. Like, oh, like you finna go fight somebody. You know what I'm talking about. That's not a meek person. When other people say or do something to offend you, you don't snap back even harder. That's not meekness. Think about the way you react to insults and, and volatile situations. Do, do you usually contribute to the, the heated situation? Are you usually ready to, 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 to urge it to pop off? You know, like, oh, I, oh he didn't get me. Hold up. Hold up. You know, are you that one? Hold up one second. Hold up. Are you that person? Are you able to say some things from the word that calms the situation down? That, that's like a, like, like a soothing medicine. That's what meekness can do. See, there's benefits to all of these things. Have to remain meek. It's needed for forgiveness. Another characteristic is humility. Now we all know what that is. It's the opposite of pride. It's being humble. But humility, that'll help you keep focused on what's eternal and not temporal. It'll always have you consider the other's feelings before reacting and before you decide I'm not going to forgive them. It'll have you consider the other, other people's feelings. You'll put yourself in their shoes because let's face it, whatever this person has done to transgress against you is not worse than what we've done to transgress against God. So we can forgive. See, the forgiveness we receive through Christ, that's eternal. Our little petty disagreements on earth, they're temporal. In the grand scheme of things, they mean nothing. So all of these things being the characteristics of the attitude of forgiveness, what is forgiveness? So forgiveness is to forget one's previous stance on a matter and to carefully and patiently restore the offender to your favor. All the while remembering, you know, that, that's me. And God forgave me through Christ. That'll keep you humble. I'm going to say that again. It's to forget one's previous stance on a matter and to carefully and patiently restore the offender to your favor. All the while remembering that that's me. And, for, and God forgave me through Christ. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read verse 32, no, 31 and 32. And it reads, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another tender hearted forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you see God has shown himself kind tender hearted forgiven to us and it's the just thing to do to be the same way to our brother and sister if they repent God gave the son as man to forgive us and we don't have to give nothing up but our ego to forgive. We can do that. We should pattern our forgiveness after His. And just like God was finished with His work in Genesis, we are to be finished with our works of unforgiveness. We have to be done with those works. 
Let's look at our pattern by Jesus. Let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 17. And I'm going to read verse 3 through 5. And it reads, Take heed to yourselves. And this is Jesus talking. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if you repent, forgive him. And if he trespasses against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Now they're on the right track, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you. But increase our faith, let me tell you. The faith that you have is all you need. But they're on the right track. You need to mix it with faith. Mix your forgiveness with faith. Otherwise, it's unforgiveness. Well, what if they don't repent? Well, then you continue to pray for them. Oh, you don't? Luke 17, no, Luke 6. Let's go back a couple pages. Luke 6, verse 27 and 28. And it says, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. He just said pray for them that despitefully use you. If you don't repent, if somebody's unrepentant and they've done you wrong, that's, that's spitefully using you. And it says to pray for them. Uh, Christ did it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, I say they spitefully, they spitefully used him. They spit at him. They mocked him. They beat him. And in the midst of all that happening to him, he still wanted to restore man through forgiveness. Always focused on the eternal. That's our ultimate example. See, the thing about true forgiveness, with true forgiveness, you can begin to restore somebody to their rightful position. That's what true forgiveness does. It's all over the scriptures. You think of Joseph forgiving his brothers when they sold him into slavery. But after, they, after he forgave them and offered forgiveness, they were restored as brothers. You think of David, who showed kindness to Mephibosheth. I can't say his name. Mephibosheth. There you go. He restored his land to him and his family. He was so kind for him, he offered him a place at his own table. You think of the prodigal son who came back in hopes of just being a servant in his father's house. His father forgave him and restored him as his son. You think of man, period, who God gave his son for the forgiveness of our sin so that we could be restored into fellowship. So that we can labor and enter into his rest. True forgiveness brings restoration with it. With all the parties involved, or even if it's just you. Because forgiveness, it would allow you to be restored too. However, the, the heart of unforgiveness, it brings frustration, bitterness, resentment, anger. And with these things, there's no way you can enter into God's rest. It's not possible. There is a consequence of unforgiveness and it's alienation from God. Why? Because it's disobedient to what he commanded us to do. It doesn't matter how, how frustrated you get with the individual. Remember what we just said, the gospel message is, it's forgiveness through Christ. 
And your anger or frustration with people doesn't give you a right to change that message. You may be fed up and feel a certain way about things, but God is long-suffering. God is kind. He's meek. He's forgiving. And if you get fed up and you allow your unforgiving heart to change the gospel message, you're not endeavoring to enter into God's rest. You hold on to that unforgiving attitude and try to minister to others, but you can't hide your heart. And in some way, form, or fashion, that unforgiving heart is going to show itself up and pollute the gospel message. Because remember what it takes to be to have forgiveness. In some way, form, you're not going to have kindness. There's going to be some long-suffering not showing up. There's going to be some pride showing up, not humility. No meekness. And the gospel message has changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ, these are all the fruits of the Spirit that are brought to us from Christ. That's sin. An unforgiving heart wrapped up in this frustration will change the message of repentance, forgiveness, and redemption. It'll change all those messages. Remember we were talking about in Hebrews how, how the people of Israel didn't enter the God's rest? Well, know this. Moses didn't either. He didn't, he didn't enter into the land of Canaan. And there's a reason behind it. He was frustrated. He allowed his frustration to change the gospel message. Let's go to Numbers chapter 20 and read about it. Numbers chapter 20, I'm going to read verse 1 through 12. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there, and was buried there. And there was no water from the con- for the congregation. And, the- and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chose with Moses and spake, saying, Would God, would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have you brought up this congregation of the Lord into his in this wilderness, and we and our cattle should die that we and our cattle should die here? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? Is it no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates? Neither is there any water to drink? And Moses and Aaron went to went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now right there, you can already tell. He's frustrated. And listen, he thinks he's frustrated justly, because they're coming against God. Here now, you rebels. He's mad. He's frustrated. Verse, well, I'm sorry. There we go. 
And Moses took the rod from form and, and, and verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. I didn't hear God say to do that. That was disobedience because of his frustration. Now that rock is Christ. And he has been designated to die once. But Moses struck it twice. That's changing the gospel message. In his frustration, he changed the gospel message. And it ended up costing him, if you keep reading, it costing him going into the land of promise. And the, you know what, I'm going to read that. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye, and, and Aaron, because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. That's the land of Canaan. That was their land of rest. Oh, and Moses didn't get to go either. Change the gospel message. Frustration allowing you not to be built up with the characteristics of forgiveness. Do it in your own way. Blatant. Listen, that was blatant disobedience to what God told him to do. He gave him explicit instructions. And he explicitly did not follow them. Holding on to an unforgiving heart, it changes the gospel message you should be preaching. Whether you know it or not. And you won't be prepared for the crossroads with that unforgiving heart. Which means you're not endeavoring or laboring to enter into God's rest. Unresolved bitterness and frustration, they keep us from moving forward because we get frozen in time. We get locked on that one offense and unable to move forward. We have fear of a further injury and unwilling to move to new relationships with other people, not, not alone that person that got offended you, but other people in the body of Christ because you say, oh, but that, they're kind of similar to that other person. How do you, that's unforgiveness. Listen, forgiveness can't start until we admit our own failures. If we can't do that, then we're not capable of giving or receiving forgiveness. We can't receive forgiveness without acknowledging our need for it. We can't extend forgiveness without admitting that because of our own imperfect condition, we have no right to withhold it from anybody. No right. For believers, forgiveness is not negotiable. It's the very essence of our faith. Humble yourself. Be obedient and forgive. You may find out that you're the only one holding on to that unforgiveness. And that person that offended you has moved on, has repented and moved on. And you've been stuck there for years. Stuck in your unforgiveness. So what we need to do is identify the obstacles to forgiveness. And there's three that I'm going to touch today. Three main ones because there's plenty. But there's three that I'm going to touch today. And the first one is your anger. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Amen. 
And I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. And it says, Be angry and sin not. I, I love that right there because what he's saying is, it's okay to be angry. That happens to us all. It's not a sin. But if you dwell on that anger, let, let's, 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 let's finish reading. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. If you dwell on that anger and let the sun go down on your wrath, your pride will turn your initial feeling of your, it may be righteous indignation initially, right? But it will turn your righteous indignation to selfish anger and resentment. Because you've been dwelling on it. Dwelling on it is the same thing as procrastinate dealing with it. And that's what gives place to the devil. And then he's like, oh, they're dwelling on it. Let's build the stronghold. Let's put the stronghold up in their mind. Anger is one of the reasons that, that many of us refuse to forgive. See, because forgiveness requires, requires us to release these attitudes. To let them go. Even though they may seem appropriate to us, I should be angry. I should be unforgiven to them. Forgiveness requires you to release that. But some of us, we've been so hurt by people, or we're so mad, we allow that anger to consume our thoughts, consume our time. We refuse to give those feelings up. Anger turns into resentment. And then when you do that, you begin to lose sight of purpose. You fall into a really, truly terrible, miserable place where anger becomes your purpose. That's a miserable place. Here's what I mean when I say that. You may have been wronged by an individual. And that individual may have come and apologized, has repented and apologized. But if you don't forgive that individual, when you see that person, you can always be irritated with them. You can always be contentious with them if you have to converse with them. I won't be contentious. Okay, let me clear something up for you. Walking by and I'm not speaking to him and stuff, that's contentious too. Let me help you. Who doesn't think that's wrong? If you come in and you speak to everybody and then that one person, you like, nah. That's contentious too. Let's not get legal. Don't play legal. God sees your heart. You can play, listen, you can play legal with me all day. I'm cool with it. You don't have to face my wrath. You're being legal with God. Sound like the Pharisees. Be through with those works. Be finished. Especially if they repented from the heart and you're holding your unforgiveness. Listen, they're not out of line. You are. I don't care what they did to you. You know, you might even go as far as, especially if you're angry with somebody, somebody might be coming in and be like, oh, you know what, I'm going to be working with this, this, and that person. You'll be like, wait a minute, hey, you shouldn't do this with that person. You shouldn't do that. This is what they did to me before. Your unforgiving heart has not only affected you now, but now you started affecting somebody else. Because here's the thing. 
more than likely that person you talk to, every time they see that individual from now, they're going to think something about them. And that's totally against the gospel message. You're supposed to plant the seed of Christ, not the seed of anger. Changing the gospel message. Polluting and contaminating the gospel. That's a horrible place to be. Anger becoming your purpose. Because you're off of God's purpose. Which is preaching his son. You preaching your gospel of anger. It may not be easy, but you have to let your anger go. Don't let the sun go down upon it. Another thing is fear. So we said anger and now it's fear. Obstacles to our forgiveness. Fear of losing leverage in a relationship. People, you know, they assume if they forgive, they're saying it's okay for that person to do the same thing to them again. That does bring up an important point. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're going to change another person's behavior. Forgiveness is an act of obedience. It's not a tool for manipulation. It's a way of cleaning up those grudges and those resentments that you have. And though you can't stop that person from hurting themselves, you can stop them from hurting you again, even with forgiveness. We're talking about being kind. Sometimes being kind means I need to remove myself from a certain situation. Because us two together is going to be volatile. That's being kind. Fear of losing power and control. You don't want to forgive because you want to hold something over somebody else's head. Like I said earlier, you owe me. That's prideful. That's playing God with them. As, they, as if they need to pay you back for the rest of their life. Listen, we only need to... Then nobody need to pay you back for nothing. Are you paying God back for Christ? Acting like you're so holier than them. Imagining that we're better than others. And it is imagination. We've got to pull down those imaginations and strongholds. Because you're not better than nobody. That's unacceptable to God. It's prideful. Trying to hold people captive to our judgment. You know who that puts you in a fight with? It doesn't put you in a fight with them. It puts you in a fight with our Creator. Remember in James, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Not your prideful attitude. So you're no longer at odds with them. You're at odds with our Creator. And that's a losing battle. That's a lost battle. And then we have misconceptions. I'm out of time, but I'm going to try to finish this real quick. It shouldn't take... I'm going to try to finish this real quick. So misconceptions. See, because the thing about it is, you know, some of the obstacles are that there are misconceptions to it, but 
what we need to do is we have to realize what forgiveness is not. Because a lot of people say, well, this is what forgiveness is. Let me help you with what forgiveness is not so we can get rid of some of our misconceptions. It's not excusing the behavior. True forgiveness doesn't compromise our standard by ignoring what was done. And once we understand that, then we'll, we'll be in position to forgive even the worst of offenses. To forgive is not saying what you did is okay. It's saying the consequences of your behavior belong to God and not to me. When we forgive, we transfer the person from what we think is our justice to what God says it is. So when you forgive, you can cast that care on the Lord. Leave all judgment to Him. Don't try to take God's place. It's not forgetting what happened. It, listen, it would be foolish to try to erase what happened from your memory. If we did this, we would never learn from our experiences. We'd be right, in the, right back in the same predicament, the same situation, only to face the same disappointments that we've been facing. But what we can forget eventually are those raw emotions of anger that, that come up immediately after the offense. In Christ, we can forget those things. Those bad memories. But if you choose not to learn from your mistake, then you're going to feel those again and you'll, you won't be able to forget those things. It'll keep coming up in your own life. It's not giving your trust back to a person. Trust is earned. So let's be balanced, right? Trust is earned. It's something we give to those that deserve it. We don't just hand out our trust willy-nilly. To do that would be naive and irresponsible. If there's a thief, would you give them a key to your house? If they apologize, no. Of course not. That's stupid. Of course you wouldn't. It's not agreeing to reconcile. Listen, forgiveness is a necessary step toward reconciliation. It is. But reconciliation isn't the necessary goal of, of forgiveness. In fact, there's going to be some situation where reconciliation is not a good idea at all. It would be silly and not dangerous to press for reconciliation with the person that's unrepentant. Unwilling to change. It would be silly. You're setting yourself up for, for the same damages or even greater. And the last thing is it's not always easy. It's easy enough when it comes to a one-time offense, right? And it verges nearby impossible if somebody keeps doing the same offense over and over. These circumstances require that you've developed an attitude of forgiveness, not just simply an act of it. And we know what's in the attitude of forgiveness. When Peter asked Jesus how often I should forgive somebody, and we read it earlier, he said seven times seven. He said no, 70 times seven. Now, the math of that is 490 times. Can you imagine yourself forgiving somebody that many times? Let's not even say for a big offense in our eyes. Let's say a minor offense. Let's say somebody's riding their skateboard in your, in your neighborhood and they keep knocking down your trash can every week. 
Could you imagine have to, having to forgive somebody 490 times for that? It, it almost seems like Jesus is asking us to do something that's impossible. And let me tell you something. In and of ourselves, it is. But we're to be finished with our works. We're endeavoring to enter into His rest. So when our limited resources of forgiveness run dry, and you shouldn't be dependent on them anyway, and we're unable to forgive, we can ask God to forgive others through us. Because we don't have enough forgiveness to go around. He does. And we have to do this to be wall builders. We have to do this to be channels of God's grace. Not only must we keep the attitude of forgiveness, but we have to seek forgiveness for our past wrongdoings. We have to seek forgiveness. When I say past wrongdoings, I don't just mean things done specifically to a person. For example, there's been some things I've done in my past that people have seen that might have affected them and pulled them away from Christ. Now, I'm not saying go and search out everybody who you, as a believer, have sinned in front of. I'm not saying that, but are they still in your circle? Can you still reach them? Because if they can, you need to minister to them through your forgiveness. Uh, through your seeking of forgiveness. Let me tell you something. So I told you guys a, a few Sundays ago, I don't know how long ago it was actually, but I recently got reacquainted with an old friend. I mean, he was one of my closest friends, and I'm going to end with this. He was one of my closest friends in high school. I mean, closest. he was my roommate in college. And let me tell you, he and I have done some crazy, sinful things. Okay? All the while, he knew I was a believer. He knew my father was a pastor. And so on. All things that included with that. And now that I'm back in his life, and he's back in mine, it's my purpose to make that right. I have to make that right. I need to, I, I went and found him. And, and before I went anywhere, before I started preaching Jesus that and Jesus this, I had to apologize for the things that me and him did together. Sincerely. Otherwise, he ain't hearing that. I can't just come up. See, that's prideful. Just coming up and talking about, oh, you still living? You need Jesus. You need this. You need this. He's like, but you did it. You have to seek forgiveness. See, if I want to bring him to a place of restoration, I have to seek his forgiveness too. Don't think that you're so holier than somebody. It's not going to work. In this season of restoring the lost generation, in this arise and build, if you hold on to unforgiveness in your heart, you'll see some people that you're supposed to be laboring with. And because of unforgiveness, you'll be stuck and frozen and not able to do anything. You won't be able to labor with them to enter into God's rest. And you may think that you're walking with Christ. But you haven't addressed this area of unforgiveness. Amen. Extend your feet. This has been a teaching message from Church of the Living Water at Austin. 
For more information about our ministry, please go to our website at livingwateraustin.net.